Chapter 29 in our study of the patriarchs is, is where we are um, in, our, in our class. This is a, a very important chapter for two reasons. Reason number one, here we see the continuing transformation of Jacob occurring, where God is continuing to transform Jacob and deal with his, you know, as you know, his proclivities for deception and, and manipulation and, and all of the terrible things that got him into such a mess. And that's going to be through his uncle Laban. <laughs> for a time, Jacob is going to be out deceived. And God is going to use Laban to teach Jacob a series of lessons. At the end of this particular story, Jacob is going to leave Laban uh, a wealthy man. He will have out-deceived Laban. We'll get to that in a minute. The second reason this is important is it helps us to understand this chapter. I mean, it helps us to understand how Jacob gets into such a mess where he has two wives, and each one of his wives gives him, uh, they, they give him his, her, their servant for him to have sexual relations with. So he ends up having 12 sons through four women. And this is a mess. And so what we want to do when we're done with all this is ask this question, why does God allow all this? Why did he allow this incredibly dysfunctional family to develop. I mean, it was an absolute mess. I remember, uh, this is years ago, I had been traveling or whatever, I came back and <clears throat> Peggy, she reads through the Bible every year and she, it was early in January and she was just finishing this section and I got home, I sat down, I was pretty tired and everything. She says, honey, I gotta talk to you. <laughs> okay. But what she said is that just like she, Jacob's family was one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. And I thought, you know, that is really good comment. It was. So this chapter helps us to see the origin of this mess. But let's first start with just the, we briefly started it last week, chapter 29. He, he Jacob, is up in Padamaram, if you're following on your map, way up north there. Aran is the city. Padamaram is the region. He's up there. This is where his uncle lives. He's looking for his uncle. And as you know, we, we talked about this last week as we got into the chapter. God's providence is all over this. Rachel just happens to show up at this well to water the sheep of her, of her, uh, of her uncle Laban. And as soon as, as soon as Jacob sees her and he finds out who she is and all of that, he realizes this is what God has done. So if we look at verse 9, which is where I'd like to pick up because we have gone through the beginning of it last week. While he was spe still speaking with them, these would be the other shepherds who are watering their flocks at the well. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. <clears throat> and Jacob told Rachel that was his father's kinsman, that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, don't, don't make too much of verse 11 that this kissing is an erotic kiss or anything like this. This is family. Jacob recognizes 
that she is of Laban's family, and it's a family type of affection. Now, it's quickly going to become more than that. <clears throat> but it's just he, he recognizes who she is, and he, he sees God in all this. God is superintending all this. And so Rebecca, in the same way, is responding and goes and tells Laban and so on. And then verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his house. Again, this is family affection. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said, surely you are bone of my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. He is Jacob, stayed with him, Laban, a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, again, this is, is a very appropriate thing for Laban to say. You are working for me. I want to pay you. What, what can we negotiate here? Now, here's the background. Laban had two daughters. <coughs> Excuse me. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. That's really important, the name of the older. Because this is going to resurrect the whole situation with Jacob and Esau. Now, Leah is older. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. <clears throat> That's how the ESV translates that. It is a very difficult Hebrew word to, to translate. Some translations have now, Leah's eyes were soft. Nobody knows what that means. So... We're not exactly sure what Moses is telling us here, the author of, of, of the book of Genesis, whether this is saying that she was partially blind or had something that was malfunctioning. We just don't know. But there's something about Leah's eyes that, in contrast to Rachel, made her not as attractive. Now, those two sentences, that makes sense. That's the best I can do in trying to really interpret what Moses is telling us here. It's really hard. The Hebrew word is impossible to translate adequately. We, we don't, I haven't seen a good one. So it's something, there's something about her eyes or something about that just she's not as attractive as Rachel. And because the next part of the verse says, and Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So it's just a contrast between not their character, not their heart, and just to how they looked. Okay, verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. So it's a month. We just learned a couple of verses ago that Jacob has been with Laban and the family for a month. And so during that time, I think we could say it this way, he has fallen in love with Rachel. So Laban has said to him, now look, you've been working with me a month. You're going to stay someone. What are the wages? We've got to reach an agreement here. Your family, but I need to pay you. I need to, to help meet your, your needs here. So what, what do you want? Well, telling us the background, he's got his eye on Laban, Rachel. And he said, I'm in the middle of verse 18, I will serve you, I, Jacob, will serve you, Laban, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, you have to remember how extraordinary this request is. It's not that he's requesting her hand in marriage. That's the normal thing to do. But he's asking for the younger daughter. 
It is the norm in the ancient Near Eastern world. And as a matter of fact, that's still the norm in Muslim movies today. You marry your oldest daughter first. So Jacob is asking him to skip over that. I don't want Leah. I want Rachel to be my wife. So he's asking him for that. That's the wages. You've asked for, this is what I'm asking for. I will work for seven years for you, but I want to marry Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, we're going to find out that Laban didn't really mean that. He, we'll talk about what happens in just a minute. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And <laughs> I love this. They seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Just like you men when you met your wife and... I mean, the, the days and weeks and months, it's just no measure of time. Those few days, it seems like a second. And the first year, oh, my. I might be wrong, but most men are not like that. Once the, the gal says, I do, all of a sudden, all of the plans, and we no longer hold the door, we no longer grab her hand, we no longer touch her back, we no longer kiss her, we no longer remember things, that, you know. I know you, none of you were like that, but this is an extraordinary statement that Jacob really, really loved Rachel. And uh, so Moses is just making this comment. Those seven years passed quickly. Then Laban said, excuse me, verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife and I may go into her for my time is completed. And that would mean that uh, consummate the marriage, and we can be in our life together. <clears throat> Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. And that is very typical in the ancient Eastern world. Uh, it's even typical in our culture. You know, a marriage is followed. It's a big deal. Dads spend a lot of money when their daughters get married. And so that's what Laban is doing. But this next part is really strange for our culture. But in the evening, he took his daughter, he would be Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Now, verse 24 inserts a piece of information that seems out of place, but it's going to be an important piece of information for what comes up later in the next chapter. Parenthesis. <clears throat> Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. That's a parenthesis. So as a part of this wedding gift from the father, the father gives Leah a servant girl. Her name is Zilpah. Close parenthesis. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So it's really, it's really difficult to understand this because what obviously it means is Jacob and Leah had sexual intercourse. They consummated the marriage bond. But it's at night, so we can only infer Jacob did not see the face of the girl with whom he was making love. So the sun rises, he wakes up, 
She's making coffee. They have special Starbucks blend at that time. And he wakes up and looks and sees, that's not Rachel. That's Leia. The other possibility, which it could mean, it is not unusual in the ancient Near Eastern world. As a matter of fact, still in the Middle Eastern world, especially in the Bedouin tribes, for the wife to wear a veil and keep that veil on for several days. So I'm, I'm not sure which, which one applies here, but in the morning, <clears throat> Jacob realizes he's been tricked. He's been out-tricked. He's no longer the master trickster. Someone else has out-tricked him. It's Laban. God is using Uncle Laban, as an instrument of the discipline of Jacob. God is using another person as an instrument of his discipline. When God disciplines those that belong to him, he uses three means. He uses his word, he uses other people, or he uses circumstances. They're the three means, three instruments God uses to discipline to train, to transform his children. So God is using Uncle Laban who out-tricks Jacob. And you're going to see Jacob understands what God's doing here. Is Laban a believer? I don't know if I can definitively answer that. Because later on, uh, we're going to read about some idolatry in Laban's household. There are little idol idols that are part of the narrative. My gut would tell me I'd be suspicious that he really is a genuine believer. But I'm just, I'm just not sure that we... He'd been tricked. So what does he do? Jacob said to Laban, I'm in verse 25, what is it that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to notice the words here. There are three really important words. Why then have you deceived me? First important word. Jacob, the master deceiver, who tricked and deceived Esau, tricked and deceived his dad, all of that, he now looks at Laban and says, why have you deceived me? <clears throat> Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, a second keyword. Because who was the firstborn in Jacob's family? Esau. And then he goes on. This is Laban speaking now. Complete the week of this one. Now, what does that mean? The wedding feast in the ancient Near Eastern world, and in actually some of the cultures even in the Middle East today, is a week long. It's seven days of celebration, 
I mean, it's a big, it's a big community event. It's a big deal. Dad's putting out a lot of money for this. And so he says, complete the week of this one. Celebrate the wedding of you and Leah, my oldest daughter, my firstborn. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So this is the deal. This is the wager. This is the agreement. Celebrate seven day, days now of marrying Leah. And I will give you Rachel as your second wife. But you got to serve me another seven years. Do you ever think if you were Jacob, what would you have done? I mean, it's just one of those, you know, it's, uh, it, it really... How much it's in effect, Laban's. How much you really want Rachel? <clears throat> how much you really want her? Here's the deal. He gets her right away. Oh, he does get her, but he had to, to, to be able um, to keep her, so to speak. He's got to serve another seven years. So complete the first week of celebration. Then I'll give you Rachel too, but you got to serve me for seven more years. Jacob did so. I'm in verse. When he completed her week, meaning her week, Leah's week, the celebration of the wedding, then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So the wedding celebration is over with Leah. At the end of the wedding celebration, all of a sudden, Leah sees Rachel. And what did we learn? He loved Rachel. <clears throat> well, I'll get to that in a minute. Now, Moses puts another parenthetical expression. In verse 29, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Now, that was a very typical thing to do in this culture, where the dad, as, as a part of the wedding thing, would give to his daughter, who's getting married, a servant who would serve her. And it really isn't a slave. It's, it's like, uh, oh, I'm not sure I want to compare it to but it's a little bit like if you ever, if you watch Downton Abbey with your wife, you know, all those girls had a special servant girl who helped dress her each day. I mean, it was, that's the upper royalty. That's what it was in, in Edwardian England, which is when Downton Abbey occurs. And so it's kind of like that. This isn't somebody who's her slave. She's her servant. She helps her in every area of her life because Laban is a wealthy man in terms of this culture. And you see that expressed in the number of, of the herds that he has, which we'll read about later, as well as all of this complicated set of relationships with servants. And so now, Jacob's household, he waited seven years to marry whom he thought was going to be Rachel. Now, all of a sudden, within a week, he's got four women in his household. Two wives, each with a servant. Now, I'm really stressing that he's got four women in his household now. Two wives and two servants. And their servants are, are their 24-7 type of servants. So this is an extraordinary situation for him to be in. And so he, he's, he's got now this, and this is what Moses is doing. So he, he constructs the, all the people of this narrative. And having these four women explains why he has 12 children. And that's just, God isn't, well, I'll talk about that when we're done. Okay, 
So then verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, meaning went into is a euphemistic Hebrew way of saying they had sexual intercourse. So within eight days, he had sexual intercourse with two women. Both are his wives. It's not illicit. It's, it's just an extraordinary situation. But then this very piercing sentence, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. He meets the obligation. So one of the questions we're going to start to ask ourselves is, if he is showing favor to Rachel over Leah, will God take care of Leah? Because Jacob's not going to. As a matter of fact, in the very next word, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, I will talk about that word in just a minute. So God is going to intervene, so to speak, and bless Leah in an extraordinary way. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. In my Bible, I just wrote, again, the grace of God. He takes care of Leah. Okay, I saw a hand. Oh, I, met, a oh, I thought I saw a hand. Um, what's the ethnic background of the servants here? That's a good question. As far as the names, uh, names don't help. We are assuming they're part of that clan. Very, very large clan that's in Haran and so on. That's all I can say. They're Semitic people, Fred. But, I mean, all the people of this part of the world are Semitic people. That's true today. So, but they, that's, that's all I can say. They're Semitic people. I, I, other than that, I don't know. I don't think we have any other information about what they, their ethnic background is. All right, now, let's, let's summarize here before we move to the next part. Because what are we going to do? We're going to do this fairly quickly, but I want to chart the end of chapter 29 into the chap uh, chapter 30, the account of Jacob's children being born. Now, why is this important? Why does Moses take all this time to tell us about all these kids being born? Because these are the 12 tribes of Israel. These will be the 12 tribes that will populate the land of Canaan when God gives it to them. Remember, they got to go through Egypt, they got to through the Exodus, all that stuff. But it's time. These, these are the 12, the origins of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you're really interested, is in your note packet on page 22, I gave you a chart. <clears throat> I gave you a chart that shows the background of and the lineage of Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebecca, and then Jacob, and then to the four women, each one of the, the, the boys that's born to form the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is a nice little chart, you know, if you're interested in it, and you can value the chart too. It's from Judah, one of the, one of the sons. By the way, Judah is born to Leah, which is another example of God's grace, it seems to me. But from Judah comes David, several generations later, and then a thousand years after that comes Jesus. So this is this information that's in this these chapters, 29 and into 30, is really important because this is where the 12 tribes come from. This is how it starts with the 12 boys of, of, of Jacob. 
So now we see an example, as I mentioned earlier, of God's sovereignty here, God's grace here. First of all, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that's a very intense word. Um, when you and I take the English word hate, and you say, which I hope you don't say very often, I hate you, you say to somebody. Uh, that's, a, that, that's a word filled with lots of emotion. It's almost always sourced in anger of some type. That's not the real meaning of this word in the Hebrew language. That's why it's really, it's, it's really hard to know how to translate this. Because when the text says Leah was hated, it's not so much a term of deep, visceral emotion from, from Jacob. It's that Jacob does not favor Leah. In effect, Jacob rejects Leah. That's the sense of this word. It's not a visceral focus of anger which results in I hate you. It's when I have Rachel and I have Leah, I love and favor Rachel. I do not favor you, Leah. As a matter of fact, in terms of the relationship, I really reject you. Okay, that's that's a better way to put it. It's What's a better that? way to yeah, not uh, Bill. Bill said in the NIV translates it not loved. That's what uh, is, is it a comparative? Uh, comparative. It is. It is. Okay. Thanks. It is. Yep. And notice when God saw the lay was it? He opened her womb. That's grace. But it's also affirming something we've studied in the last several chapters. The sovereignty of God is all over Jacob's life. And God is in control of this. So God, and I, I love this because even though, even though Jacob does not favor Leah, God does. Did she earn it? Does she deserve it? No, no, that's not the point. God is graciously favoring Leah. And he is going, to, let me put it this way, he is going to allow her to be the mother of some of the most important children of Jacob. In terms of the history of Israel, she is going to be the mother of some of the most important of all Jacob's children. I just mentioned one. She is the one who will give birth to Judah. And Judah, if you connect Jesus with the tribe, Judah is the most important of the sons. Because Jesus comes from Judah. I mean, the tribe of Judah, that's what I mean. So, I mean, just you see God's favor here. But then you see this, still in the same verse. But Rachel was barren. Have we seen that before? Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. Now Rachel's barren. Now God will be gracious to her. That's coming up later. But I mean, you see, oh my goodness, you see this again. So he, lo he Jacob loves Rachel, but she's not going to give him any children right away. As a matter of fact, 
Rachel's only going to give him two children, Joseph. And then the last little boy, Benjamin. You got to wait for that. So you see the situation. God is in control of this. Is that the discipline of Rachel? No, she didn't do anything that requires discipline. That's God's choice at this point. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. Now, I'm just going to go through this, and you can look at the chart that I gave you and so on. Reuben will be the firstborn. Now, that is important because later on in this story in Genesis, Reuben is going to lose that position as the firstborn. We'll find out why. But the text is established. Firstborn of Jacob is Reuben. So he should inherit all of the privileges of being firstborn, including the double portion of the inheritance. He will not get that. And we'll find out why later on. Because the Lord had looked upon my affliction, for my husband will love me, she said. So she conceived again and bore a son. And said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband shall be attached to me, because I've been born him three sons. His name was called Levi, or the way the Hebrews pronounce it today, Levi, but Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Did you notice the change? First three times she says, maybe Jacob will look with favor upon me. Now he'll love me. This time she says, I will praise Yahweh. This son is Judah. The year is 1919 B.C. In terms of the Messiah, this is the most important of Jacob's 12 sons. And again, it's not that the others aren't important. But did you notice that? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Two of those four. So she's going to bear a couple more sons. You'll see in just a little bit. But those two are the most important in terms of the history of the nation. Because the Levi will come the Levites. And who are they? They're the priests. These will be the intercessory between God and the people of Israel. The Levites are going to be strategically critical for the theocracy God's setting up. But nobody knew that now. Nobody knew what was going on. But you and I know it. We look at it and say, wow, God really did look with favor upon Leah. She is blessed. She gives him favor. And that's why I love that third, that fourth time. She turns from maybe, maybe my husband will not love me. Now maybe he'll know him. I praise the Lord that he has blessed me with four sons. She had no idea the importance of Levi and Judah. But you and I look back, God really was gracious to this woman. We're saying uh, God's grace extends on humanity's grace. And, and that's our hope, and it's the hope, I think, perhaps, uh, of those who are lost and early on. <clears throat> As long as you're drawing breath, there's always hope. That's grace. All right. Everybody with everybody online with me? Okay. Let's now shift to 
chapter 30. Did, Russ, did you have a question? No. Okay. You must have coughed, but I saw the light go on. Now, continuing in verse 1 of chapter 30, you know, just naturally flows in. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, remember she's barren, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, said, am I in the place of God who has withhold, held from you the fruit of your womb? So, I mean, I don't know how, to, how you look at that. That wasn't a very nice thing for him to say, you know. He's not being real compassionate or loving to his wife. He's not be <laughs> empathetic or sympathize with her. I mean, he's just kind of, I'm not God. I can't help your baron. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to say. That violates every one of Norm Wright's wonderful book, Communication, the Key to Your Marriage. It's the total bankruptcy, but that's Jacob. So what does Rachel do? She's barren. She envies Leah. Her husband is giving her no sympathy or compassion. So she comes up with an alternative plan. It sounds a little bit like Sarah. When she can't give Abraham a son, although the promise had been made, let's help God along. Here's Hagar, you know, the story that happens there. So here is my servant, Bilhah. Now we learn from her, she's the servant that her father gave to her. Okay? so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, his wife, and Jacob went into her, meaning it's sexual intercourse. And Bilhah conceived and bore a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me. He has also heard my voice and given me a son. She called his name Dan. Dan sounds like the Hebrew word, for judgment, which is perhaps why she named him that. So now Jacob has five boys. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again, bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali resembles the Hebrew word for wrestle. So she's struggling with her sister, I'm getting the victory through Bilhah, my servant. That's how she's looking at it. Now, we learned earlier that Leah had four sons, and she ceased giving birth. So the third stage begins in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as wife, and Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Jad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, where two women have called me happy. Called his name <coughs> Asher. So each one of the sons <coughs> has a name. Excuse me, I don't know why I'm coughing here. That resembles the situation in which they are in. But now, so far, you can see this is becoming very complicated. This is becoming rather messy. You have all these boys running around, but they have different moms. 
same dad, different mom. So there are going to be two questions that are going to come to our mind as we get into the next chapter. How is Jacob managing this complex household? How are the different women managing this complex household? And do we see in the 12 sons any evidence of this mess? <clears throat> well, those are all loaded questions that... I, I, think, I think Jacob played a lot of golf. <laughs> he played a lot of golf. Well, he wasn't playing golf all the time. He has 12 kids. So, yeah, but I mean, he, he's a very much a distant dad. We'll talk about that later on. All that's going on here is just the complexity of this situation. And what do you see? I suppose it's that way in 21st century American culture, but in the ancient Near Eastern world and really much of the Middle Eastern world today, to have children is the most important thing you can desire. And what you have seen is envy and jealousy between Rachel and Leah, between Leah and Rachel, and the servants of each one of these women gets involved in this envy and jealousy. And so because Leah has a servant, when the servant gives birth, that in effect, she regards that's my son. Rachel does the same thing. This is a mess. So the envy and jealousy and competition, I'm gonna, this is a very difficult thing to say in the 21st century. But you see competition among wives for the affection of their husband. But there is another conclusion we can draw. If you step outside of God's monogamous desire for marriage, you see it in Genesis 2, you see the result of polygamy. And this is one of the things that's really interesting because I've been asked this many, many times. If God's ideal is a monogamous heterosexual marriage, that's in Genesis 2. Very clear. The creation ordinance of God. There's no doubt about that. Well, then why do you see all these people in the Old Testament having lots of wives? The answer to that question is, well, God is permitting this. It certainly is not something he did. Jesus even talks to this when he's responding to the Pharisees. Your hardness of your heart explains why you're doing this. And what God does is say, okay, if you're going to choose to do this, then I am going to demonstrate the horrific consequences of polygamy, where you have women competing with one another in the polygamous marriage for the affections and loyalty of their husband. That's exactly what Leah and Rachel are doing. So God, is this God's perfect, perfect ideal? Of course it isn't. It violates his monogamous heterosexual ordinance in Genesis 2. But God permits it, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, and we see the consequences. See anybody else like this? Well, fast forward a thousand years, you see David. David had the penchant when he sees a woman he really likes, he takes her to his wife. He did that with several. Finally, it culminates with Bathsheba, and you know what happens as well with that. And again, you see polygamy. How about his son, Solomon? You see Solomon, his first wife, he marries an, the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh, which was a very 
dumb thing for him to do. But and then he just has wife after wife after wife after wife. You have Moabite wife, an Ammonite wife. Oh yeah, what do you see? You see the terrifically important result that God wants us to see to polygamy. If you don't follow God's ideal, you will live with the consequences. And so that's what you're seeing here with Jacob. God is showing us, and this is beyond the primary point of the narrative, but when you step back and, back and do biblical theology, what you're seeing is God is permitting this for, we, for us to see the really awful consequences. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is you learn from your unwise choices. And if you don't learn from your unwise choices, you're going to continue to be a fool. And that's why it's the extraordinary thing about Solomon. He was the wisest, supposedly the wise man that ever lived, and he made some of the stupidest decisions of anybody in humanity. Right. You know, and, and uh, <clears throat> when God created man, he said it's not perfect, man should be So he created a helpmate. Hmm? He created a bunch of helpmates. <laughs> that's right. You know, along the same lines, the, Jacob was not exactly uh, passive in this situation. And it harkens back to Adam and Eve when Eve saw the apples, the fruit of the tree was beautiful, and she took it, and then she gave it to her husband, and he partook. Willingly, intentionally, intentionally, defiantly enjoyed it. Yeah. Yep. Jim? Are these servants, are they destined to never be married and only serve? Like, the, norm, the norm would be yes. So, that would be the so norm. then when Jacob goes into them, do they become his wife? Or are they just still servants? They are. Um, even the one, uh, I forget where it was, I think it was Bilhah, that she became his wife. That's in verse uh, four. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, a wife. So they have to acknowledge that. Okay, as a wife. That's right. Automatically, it doesn't make them a wife. That happened with Hagar. That's right. So uh, uh, Rachel is giving Bilhah to Jacob as a wife. Her understanding of it, his understanding of it. Bilhah's understanding is that I'm one of his wives. That's why technically Jacob has four wives at this point. And Fred's, Fred's comment is, is appropriate here. Jacob would have had the responsibility to say, no, I'm not going to do this. It violates God's creation ordinance, which would have been a really remarkable thing for him to say. But he, he doesn't do that. So, I mean, this is one of these complex aspects of these narratives, because you don't see pushback from these heroes. Jacob's just compliant. Okay, sure. That's a good idea. I'll take her. You know, I always have a cynical. I shouldn't have said it that way. It's just there's no pushback. There's just, no, he does it. And so instead of being, and I, this, I, I, I say this intentionally, instead of being the spiritual leader of his home, he's not. And that's putting a lot of responsibility. You expect him to act like Tony Evans or something, who wrote a number of really fine books on what it means to be the spiritual leader of your home. But that this, we, we would expect this of Jacob. He's one of the heroes of the Bible. 
But Jacob is a fallen person who's a trickster. And so God is transforming him. He's in process. But you're seeing, and this is, again, I, I'm getting on a bunny trail, and we're almost out of time, but how, how God is wanting us to step back, and let's take a big-picture look at this, too. Not only are we understanding how the 12 tribes come about, but the big-picture look is I want you to think here about polygamy. I want you to think very honestly about the impact of polygamy on all the people involved, and I want you to see the dysfunction of it. There are no, exam- there are no good examples of this in the Bible. Now, verse 14, uh, if, if I could get all the sons born today, God would really be pleased with us. That's my way of saying, can I go on? In verse 14 through verse 18 is something very bizarre. It really is. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went, and Reuben is the oldest, he's the firstborn, and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said, it is a small matter that you've taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. He, Jacob, may lie with you, come into you, have sexual intercourse with you. Just give me his mandrakes. So Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him, and said, you must come into me, for I have hired, hired you with my son's mandrakes. So she lay with him that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. She called him Ishakar. Now, this is absolutely bizarre. Apparently, in the ancient Near Eastern world and this culture at this time 4,000 years ago. Mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. Do you know what I mean by that word, aphrodisiac? Everybody? Okay. That, that's superstitious. It's a superstitious practice. But they're buying into this superstition and so Leah, <laughs> there's an exchange here. Rachel's going to get the mandrakes from Reuben, the son of Leah, and the price is, I want to lay with Jacob tonight. I want to get pregnant with Jacob. So that's what happens. And the result is Ishakar. Don't ask me to explain this any further. It's a weird, superstitious aphrodisiac. God makes no ethical comment about this. God isn't saying anything uh, about it. He's not evaluating. Just this is what happened. This explains Ishakar. Leah conceived again. She bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. That son is called Zebulun. And then verse 21, the only daughter born to Jacob, Dinah is born to Leah. So this is really astonishing, guys. God has blessed Leah with six sons and a daughter. Then God remembered Rachel. That's exactly the language we see with Sarah. It's exactly the language we see with Rebecca. What does that mean, that God forgot Rachel? Oh, I forgot Rachel. No, that's not what it means. It's covenant language. 
God remembered Rachel. God listened to her, her prayers, opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. God has taken away my reproach, she said, and she named him Joseph. It's 1916 B.C. Joseph is going to be extremely important, as you know. We'll be reading about this later in our study of the patriarchs. But Joseph is going to be the reason Jacob's clan gets down to Egypt. We don't know this at this point. But Jacob, Joseph is going to become the favorite son of Jacob. Why does Joseph become the favorite son of Jacob? Because she was Rachel's boy. Rachel was his first love. So all this is doing is just explaining to us that God finally, I shouldn't say finally, God remembered Rachel, and she is able to conceive, and she gives birth to Joseph. And then she prays, the end of this narrative, verse 10, uh, verse 24, may the Lord add to me another son. Does God answer that prayer? Yes. She will give birth to Benjamin. And tragically, with the birth of Benjamin, she will not survive that birth. She will die giving birth to that. But that's coming up. So we've now completed 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob being born. The 12th one, Benjamin, is just a little bit later here. And we also see he had a daughter to Leah, Dinah. That will be important later on as well, because that's going to be a very, very tragic thing that's going to happen. All right. Now, before we move into the com to the comment about um, God really blessing Jacob in a, in a remarkable way, which coming up with Laban, which is going to cause him to leave Laban. Do you have any questions about this complicated mess of Jacob's family? He's got 11 sons and a daughter to four different women, all of whom now legally regarded as his wife. It's his wife, I should say. And you can just see the competition for the affection of Joseph. Excuse me. Competition for the affection of Jacob. And all of the dysfunction is, is really produced. Question. What yeah. do you know about the nature of the wives, first wife, second wife? Is there, I can order the most polygamous I've known was Muslim from Jordan. He was explaining he had to treat both wives equal. Same size homes, same furnishing, same level of clothes, same manner of living between the two wives. Was that the same then? Or did we not know? Uh, it would not be the same. It is, that's very much a part of the ethical practice of Muslim polygamy. They are to treat all of their wives equally. That is very important. That's in the Quran. Uh, that is not the case here, uh, Glenn, and it's not the case in much of uh, uh, the ancient world. Uh, and that, the tragedy is you can see in all of this, Jacob favors Rachel. He favors Rachel. So I'm not sure I can take it as quite as far as maybe you want me to. Did he treat Rachel in his favor to her? Did he give her more material things? Did he, you know, all that? I'm not sure if I can comment on that because I don't know for sure. But there's not, that's not stipulated in the law because the law doesn't want to recognize polygamy as the perfect practice God wants. But it's, um, and even, and I know, I, I know that very much about the Muslim culture, but, you know, Glenn, 
even that though, the favorites, the favorites come out. That's one of the real challenges in Muslim polygamy. It's supposed to be equal, but it rarely is. The other aspect of this is how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which until uh, 1896 regarded polygamy as part of their practice. That's Mormons. They practiced polygamy. Joseph Smith was a polygamist. Brigham Young had 47 wives. And how do you treat all 47 wives? Well, he was, well, I'm going to give you that. He was a real rascal. He really married girls that were 12 because they really liked what they looked like. But my point is that becomes, that becomes one of the re- issues of polygamy. It's, it's a very difficult thing to manage because you're going to have unequal treatment, favoritism, and so on, which is utterly destructive to a family. That's exactly what Jacob was. That's really a really good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Hey, Jim. So I had a quick comment. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, a lot of times when uh, I'm out passing Bible tracts or whatever, and some of the, mainly the the guys, they always mention, well, I mean, in the, in the Bible, they had different wives, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, but you need to read the stories to you, so you can see all the problems they had. <laughs> so a lot of people miss that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. That's a good way to respond to that. And I think, again, we were talking about that earlier. God permits this for us to see the disastrous consequences of polygamy. It is not positive. There is nothing positive presented anywhere in Scripture about polygamy. All right, it's probably time. Uh, one guy's left. Two of you are packing your Bibles up. You close your Bible. So obviously I'm done. So I'm going to pray here, okay? And let you go because I've got to get to my next thing. Enjoy this remarkable summer day. And what's the saying my mom used to use it? Uh, March comes in either as a lamb or what? Lion. Well, mm-hmm. obviously it came in like a lion. Lamb. <laughs> Thank you. I know. I was going to, I was saying that kiddingly. Yeah, this is unbelievable. I guess, has it come in at 74 in March? But this is God's blessing for you, men. I look at it as God's curse, but that's okay. Yeah. Father, thank you for the lesson we learn here um, when we look at Jacob and his four wives. A tragic situation in so many ways. And the competition for his affection, uh, the, the impact this will have on these boys, and actually on Dinah as well. We'll look at that later on. Uh, we just see the results of polygamy. When human beings choose not to follow God's direction, then human beings live with the consequences. And that is certainly true. God still loves Jacob. He's still the covenant son. The blessings are going to continue to flow through him and ultimately through his son Judah and all the way down to Jesus. But this is God's grace. He is continuing to transform Jacob. He's continuing to deal with Jacob's sin and all of his shortcomings. But we have to read through the consequences of choosing not to do what God wants. I pray for these men here online, as well as those here in the room. Be with them, Lord. Help them to be very strong men of faith who represent you well in this world. You be with them. May they represent you well in what they do and what they say. To the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen.